This is Midnight Alchemy with your host Jason Allen on the Left Coast Media Network. And now here's Jason. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening wherever and whenever you are. This is Midnight Alchemy and I am Jason Allen. Woo boy, it would be an understatement to say that this is going to be a one humdinger of an episode. Going to be talking with demonologist extraordinaire Nathaniel Gillis and folks we are going to be swimming in some deep waters here in a bit. First, let's take care of some quick paranormal news from the mirror in the UK. Time Traveler proves it's real with photo of future city from the year 6000. The man who claims to be a time traveler insists he was part of a top secret program to send people into the future and has brought back a pick to back up what he says. Oh, boy. All right, step aside, Doctor Who. This man says he's been to the future and he has a photo to prove it. A bizarre video shows the time traveler whose face is blurred meeting a reporter at an undisclosed location to reveal what he knows about the secret technologies and what the future holds for humanity in the year 6000. The self-appointed whistleblower who has his voice distorted claims to have been part of a secret program to send people forward in time in the 1990s. He says advances in medicine, government, and new technology will make modern life seem primitive. And humankind lives in peace under the benevolent rule of an AI overlord. To prove his point, in the middle of a rambling speech, he produced a photo of an unnamed city. Unfortunately, it is so blurred that it is more in common with a Monet watercolor painting than a futuristic landscape. But hold on to your horses, folks. He claims in the time travel process, pictures tend to get distorted, as well as many other things. He adds, I know a lot of you are going to find my story extremely hard to believe, and I don't blame you. And if I was watching somebody claim these same things, I myself would most likely not believe them. It is not my intention to deceive anybody, he says. I simply want to spread a message about the future of humanity and where the world is heading. I have seen the way the world's changed and the technologies that have emerged. It would blow your mind if you only knew the technologies that exist in the year 6000. Ah, time travel. So let's get right to it. Let's get to the interview, shall we? Demonologist Nathaniel Gillis is here with us today. He is a widely respected demonologist, and we are going to get into all sorts of trouble. Nathaniel, how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing great, and I'm glad to be with you. It's a, it's a whole new audience for me, and I'm just excited to share some of my work with you. Yeah, awesome. Uh, if you don't mind, uh, you talked a little earlier about Coast to Coast AM. Right. I mean, that's the big leagues here. We're, we're like, uh, if we're using baseball, in their major league, and I'm what? <laughs> <laughs> well... Yeah, it's uh, you know, it's kind of funny. Like my very first show ever, ever uh, before I was ever on radio, and it was was coast to coast. And that was because I, I had emailed them some, some of my research, and I was like, well, you know, this is a new perspective on demonology. Um, but yeah, so I'll be on there tonight, or it's gonna be it's it's gonna be three a.m. Eastern, which is gonna wow. be tough for yours truly because it's like for, yeah. for three to five. It's I'm pretty much staying up the whole night, right? But uh, you are literally burning the midnight oil. Yeah, right. Okay, um, straight right out of the gate, uh, we're gonna go uh, 
the very first step, and that is, uh, you know, what got you started on studying demonology? How did you fall into that? So I encountered the phenomenon at uh, eight years old, between eight and a half, eight and nine years old. Uh, my house, my, my parents were moving into a new house, and uh, we went in to tour before we actually closed on it. I went into what would become my future bedroom, and when I did, I saw a full-bodied apparition hiding underneath the bed. Uh, It was a little girl. Yeah, it was just, bam, you know, out of nowhere. I'm thinking, what? I couldn't place her, and in my little mind, I kept thinking that she belonged to some family that lived in the cul-de-sac. But no, it was an entity, and upon moving into the house, it mutated. It evolved. And so it wasn't an actual little girl. It was just a being that had tried to, I guess, appear innocent in my eyes uh, for whatever purposes. You know, uh, I have a saying for those type of moments, and that definitely is a Coop Your Panthers type of moment. (laughs) Uh, How did the eight-year-old you handle that? I mean, that's, I mean. Um, Well, there were three things that, that were present in that room at least that I I experienced. Number one, it was obviously the full-bodied apparition, um, but there was a stench of something in that room. I mean, uh, some people call it decomposition. Uh, Others people, like in antiquity, they call it, like you're literally smelling consciousness. Um, I've I've heard different theories, uh, but yeah, that was a very tough time for me. I mean, you're talking about a young kid who, like when I would go to sleep at night, I would have a recurring nightmare over and over again. It was like a running loop. And it it consisted of a couple of things that were way beyond my peripheral vision as a youngster. Uh, Number one, the the nightmare would always include uh, me walking up upon two young people, young boys, maybe about 17, 18. They were on on a picnic table. Their backs turned towards me. One had a needle in his arm. And again, as a young kid, I had no frame of reference for that. Yeah. Right. I didn't even, I didn't even know what insulin was. <laughs> I had no, I had no frame of reference whatsoever. So, uh, and then the, the young guy to the left of me, he's the one that turned around and made eye contact with me, pulled out a black 357 Magnum, stuck it in his mouth and pulled the trigger. Oh my God. And it's a rolling looping nightmare. And so what would happen is it, it was almost like my energy and my fear and terror would get worked up. Then I would wake up, shivering and there would be a presence in the room seemingly feeding off of my fear and that was my first encounter with whatever we're going to be discussing tonight right feeding off feeding off that energy holy cow man i, I again uh, eight-year-old jason sitting in his room late at night uh, <laughs> full apparition yeah, I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, either A, jumping out of the window, B, pooping my pants, and then jumping out right. of the window, and then C, running around in a circle, then pooping my pants, then jumping out of the window, <laughs> or E, all of the above. Uh, so so that really interest. <laughs> this is not fun. No. Yeah. Oh. Um, Go ahead. No, I mean, it, it was instrumental in... in my desire to become who I am and to add value to this research. Uh, but, you know, I live with it. I mean, it, it took a shower with me. It went to bed with me. It woke up with me when I got ready for school. I mean, it was always present. And uh, so my, my thing was that I, at a young age, I had to learn a, a certain coping mechanism around it. And uh, 
it was almost like it would manufacture terror and then use that terror as a source, a food source, even possibly. I don't know. Uh, but whatever it was, it was transactional. In other words, it, it, would, it would conjure something in me and then feed off of my response to it. And uh, so it, it did give me some insight into how these beings work, but it it's just, it was a wild time in my life, no doubt. I bet. Uh, you know, I'm going to ask just the most basic of question. What is a demon? Well, I could tell you what others are going to tell you. And it's based upon, obviously, a religious tradition. Um, but even the origins of the demonic and biblical scriptures, they're not clearly defined. Uh, and here's the problem with scholars and researchers alike. Anytime that we find a definition of what a demon was, it's always retrospectively. In other words, when we first heard of the sons of God, the author is assuming we already know who they're talking about. Yeah. It's, but it's only right later on in history that we look back and say, okay, this is what we know they believed in the first century, but that evolved. It was very fluid. So there were two dominating schools of thought. Uh, one is rooted in Catholicism, and that these, these, these are all horns and horns. These are fallen angels, or these are the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim. And uh, the, the, right, the problem is, uh, and this is what we're looking at in the field now, is, okay, if you look at possession case studies and, you, and you, you open up your lens to a macro level instead of that which just limited to Catholicism or, or another religious organization or denomination, rather, uh, you'll start to see that there is a common thematic element during these case studies, that there are bloody behavioral footprints in the snow, if you will, to where you can look at and say, okay, I'll tell you what we've done in a frail attempt to apply agency. We've given these beings titles, not realizing that they're doing the same things to the same people and that there is a unified uh, right. unified source of intelligence here. Right. Uh, so that's what I've hopefully been able to bring to the field is, is a deeper discussion on a more intellectual and academic level of, okay, are these, are at least, are these beings what our ancestors called demons? Right, right. Uh, no, I, I, what I was going to say, you're absolutely right. I mean, when you're talking about interpretation of what it is through the Abrahamic religions, you know, even Hindu right. and Buddhist uh, have uh, some lore on that. And so you're, you, you really got to try, like you said, that, that, Common that universality, right? The common thread yeah, yeah. that kind of links their interpretations uh, to it. The really the only uh, experience I've ever had through that, and I will uh, I will uh, give you that I will tell you of my ignorance is uh, um, I was also a, a uh, when I was a much younger man uh, I was in a, a seminary to become a Catholic priest. Uh, one of uh, one of the guys who I actually got to get to know a little bit was Father Malachi Martin, and uh, he yes. was, uh, you know, he he uh, was. Let me see if I have it. Yeah, he. Was, I'm sorry, brother. I'm listening, man. I have a. Oh, good. I think it's it's uh forget where it's at. Hostage to the devil, and I have a friend of mine that's sending me a, a windswept house with Malachi Martin's autograph. To add to my library, so I will be freaking out because I'm a big Martin fan. So I'm listening, brother. Good. Oh yeah, man. Uh, he even uh, helped me pick out what seminary to go to. You know what was good, right? Kind of sucked, and uh, I, I didn't make it all the way through. Luckily, I ran into my wife, and that was it. <laughs> but uh, here we go. 
Yeah. Uh, so my, my lens, obviously, is through uh, one of the Abrahamic religions. Now, I studied uh, mm-hmm. some of that when I was in seminary. You know, uh, how, it, you know, in Islam, they may talk about the jinn. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know too much about that. But yeah. um, through your framework, right, what are the different types of demons? Well, again, I think that this is what separates me from other systematic demonologists, uh, because at least in my research, I believe these demons to be a semi-program that these beings employ to manipulate us. They're merely roles and masks that in which they hide behind, and more than that, in which they deceive us, to which we would say, okay, they fall into this category of being, uh, right? And if they're that category, they can't be this category then. And, and, and truthfully, what we're looking at is uh, if they're not duality, they're, they're not dichotomies, they're dualities. Now, in order for, to, to, if, if we're going to get into case studies and programs, uh, it seems to be that most of your demonology is centered around the fact that possession to us is pregnancy to them. Now, this gets really deep because you'll start to see nuances of the UFO abduction phenomenon in here. And it's yeah. not even like I'm trying to make that happen. It's just, you know, the research is there. And people like you go, okay. God, it sounds like what we're dealing with today. Um, so, right, I mean, uh, my research as of, late, as of late has been centered around incubi and succubi cases throughout history. And uh, the way the phenomenon has masked itself to us and, and the desire to deceive us. Now, this gets very interesting. I mean, if you get into case studies of incubi and succubi, for those who don't know, because I didn't know either, an incubus entity is an entity that appears to a woman in the image of a man. Now, I've had cases of, of these beings uh, appearing to women in the images of their former lovers, of their current husbands, of their deceased boyfriends, all of the above. And it's, it's intercultural, it's interreligious, cross-cultural rather. So it's present. But when you get into these case studies, you start to see uh, that there are incredible interconnectivities between what's been going on throughout biblical history, Mesopotamia, Eastern Mediterranean literature, and what we're witnessing now in the field of ufology. Now, and I I don't want to ramble, but I got to make this point. What's happening is we have people who want to make this a modern phenomenon. Because if if it's a modern phenomenon, there's going to be a modern origin. But doing that, what they're wanting to do, even if it's unintentionally, is say that it's not an ancient phenomenon, because if it is an ancient phenomenon, they got to they got to answer for the ancient origin. Right. Right. Uh, You also have to take into account, even through like the Abrahamic framework, uh, all the different. uh, The ways they were, uh, I mean, from. Ancient Judaism uh, to, you know, uh, when you get into the Aramaic, Greek, mm-hmm. uh, into the vernacular, what gets lost? Oh, my God. Right, right. You know, because you better hope that that um, monk, you know, sitting in some tower somewhere by candlelight, you know, knows what the heck he's doing. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Uh, so what gets us, I've always been, you know, uh, probably I'm going to do a show probably later on about that because I've always been intrigued about, you know, what, what's been lost, you know, right. warped over, uh, uh, you know, time. You know, uh, if we're going to be, uh, if I'm going through an Abrahamic lens, okay, uh, 
who, uh, well, first let's start off with this. Are demons fallen angels and, and or was there, you know, was there a war in heaven? I could, I'll give you a, a two answers to that question. Number one, I, uh, I have a few individuals that I've talked to that are much older than I am, much more connected to the Vatican than I am. And they've told me privately that after going to the Vatican, looking at the archives, sitting down with their scholars, they were told that the war in heaven is still going on. And that's what we're, that's what we're in the middle of, that it's still going on. Yeah. And uh, that it's literally a war between gods. That's, that's what I've heard. But getting back to your original question, uh, first of all, I think the term fallen angel is, uh, again, our ancestors' best attempt to interpret the phenomenon. What is it? It's fallen. But what's fallen about an angel? When you put those together, to me at least, because at least my background consisted of like my, my parents, my dad specifically is a minister. He would flay out these uh, rabbinic scholars, Hebrew researchers from Israel. I'd have them in my house. So I was able to pick their ear. And so what I, what I learned was that, again, what is fallen about an angel and what is angelic about the fallen? And when you put both of those together, you see Yahweh Elohim, especially in the Old Testament, obviously in the Old Testament, uh, he'll talk the same way about angels that have fallen as he will about people that are dead. Yeah. They fell in battle. They fell and they were wandering spirits because they were never you know, given a proper burial or, or something uh, similar to that. Uh, so I, but it, w it wasn't until I got into the Ugaritic text that I started to put things together that you have to think extra biblically in order to understand. Because again, these writers are assuming you already know who they're talking about. And if you don't, you're screwed. <laughs> right, you yeah. have no, you don't know. Um, so if we're going to get into to the Ugaritic text, there's a, a word that they found in a ritual bowl. It's repiumai, and uh, it it was a messenger, but it was a messenger within the context of a deceased loved one or a deceased ancestor. Uh, and so that was what became the Rephaim in the Old Testament, where these beings, these men of old, men of renown, manifested as Rephaim, as the deceased portion of their existence. And so that became, again, that's why in the, in the, in the Hebrew it's Malik, Malik, Malakuma, Malik. It's a borrowed loan word. Yeah. But originally what we're dealing with, again, is not a somebody who, who's died because he can't die, or he's, he's immortal because he cannot die. He's immortal because he already has. And so when you start getting into that narrative, you realize that in Genesis 6 and what we consider to be demons, many of them were in fact disembodied ghosts who were trying to create a new body to possess. Uh, which, Right. Yeah, because I mean, if you're dealing with uh, something that is by nature spirit, uh, you know, trying to find a, a, a corporeal sort of uh, body to inhabit. And, and then we get into the whole um, Nephilim, right? The, right. the men of, you know, the men of renown, the you know, sons of God, and, you know, come down and mate with the, you know, uh, daughters of man. Uh, how do they fit in? What are what are they in in terms of an angelic and or semi angelic? I mean, I don't know. Right. Well, the fellow Hagoyim, the the sons of God saw the daughters of men and went into them. Now, what's so interesting about that? It's very vague. It's not very detailed. Uh, that's what was one of my frustrations when I started researching that aspect 
of the field. I mean, so you have what's called the Damascus document, the Testament of Reuben, various different authorities on this subject, one of which I found truly intriguing, but is probably disturbing once you get down to it. Uh, it's the Apocalypse or the Apocryphon of John. It's uh, it's uh, written and preserved by Egyptian monks. And it was a commentary on experiences that these women ex that these women encountered in Genesis 6. And then what they also added to it was some of their own research and some of what their own people were experiencing. And, and what you have is essentially these beings manifesting to women in the images of their husbands. Yeah. Now, my argument that I have with evangelical modernity is if that is when the angels fell, because some people hypothesize that they fell, uh, then they're still falling. Because yeah. this is still occurring right. in, in modernity. Yeah, but that is... <laughs> That's a little mind-blowing to think about, you know. And sometimes, right. you know, through the Old Testament and the, and the writers who did it, uh, to me, they're almost echoes. But what you're hearing is like the distant echoes of, of, of such an ancient past. Correct. And they write about it, how they heard about it. You know, everything back in the day is pre-written. It's oral. You know, it goes from right. one to the next generation to the next generation and I always what I've always told people about that was uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie uh, Johnny Dangerously is that with Keanu? that's on with Michael Keaton okay no I haven't yeah, he's sitting there in prison right and uh, they find news that his brother is going to get shot and killed at the theater that night right so one guy whispers it to the other guy to the other guy, to the other guy, to the other guy, until it gets Keith, to Keith, and the guy says, uh, uh, you know, Johnny and the something are going to be stomping at the Savoy tonight, you know, and then uh, mm -hmm. oh, they're going to kill my brother at the theater? You know, then it, it's side comedic. Right. But uh, my, my uh, you know, my little interpretation of that is things get changed and warped as things go down, different languages mm -hmm. pop up in between. But you're right. There, Even through all the echoes of the distant past and history, there always is some sort of universal trait, some sort right. of, that, that binds these guys together. And uh, like you, I mean, I've scoured the Apocrypha. I find that just endlessly fascinating. Uh, oh, for, yeah. the, for those of you who don't know what it is, these are some of the books that were written um uh, before the council of nicaea when when the uh, catholic church decided what books they were going to put in the bible and you can get into a whole discussion about that what they deem right. done or heretical or whatever uh mm -hmm. I, i'm not going to uh, make people's eyes glaze over through this uh <laughs> but uh it, it it's it, it is really worth looking, looking into folks you listening right now that's your homework uh Please remember next week there will be a pop quiz. All right. Now, if we're going still going through the Abrahamic framework, who is Lucifer? I don't know. I, I think that um, again, when you're getting into that particular text about Lucifer, how I've fallen, the language that he's being employed there, the verbiage, the the, the textual analysis implies that again he's referring to just another king 
That's the way he referred to it. It's the way he talked. And this is where, again, this, this is what called, it got me into trouble because when I was reading that particular passage about Lucifer and even demons and everything, I just assumed, I was, oh, okay, okay. But you know, what other passages in the Bible did God mention those words, right? How, how was that phrase, how is that phrase being employed by him? Has he employed that before? So even to hermeneutics and all of that fancy stuff. Um, but I don't know, uh, it's you know, a being in and of itself. I don't know, I'm not convinced, and again, I'm gonna get crucified for this. I'm not convinced that Hassan or Satan is exactly what we've been told he is. Uh, Psalms, 109, Psalms 109 and six, uh, one of the uh, famous, what's called the cursed text that rabbis and scholars alike have an issue with. Uh, David implies that these possessing beings yeah, but like, his will, right? Right, and that uh, that Satan himself was merely an adversary, an accuser, and so no, this 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 will blow your mind. Psalms one nine and six, David's dealing with a, a man who is accusing him of something, and he's like, "Man, I'm not doing that." So then he places the curse on him. Now, in the curse, he employs a Hebrew word, Rasha. Rasha has a dual meaning. It means possession. We're into demonology now without even knowing, right? Possession and evil, Amen. wicked, really. And so he points to his accuser and tells God, a point, place on that, that accuser, an evil possessing man. Oh, okay. So that entity, war, again, this, now we're getting into possession, kind of pathology possession. It's not just that that person was going to be a host to an entity. But that entity would use him as a throne to be both upon and within. Mm, okay, makes sense. Uh, so it's not just somebody uh, inhabiting a skin suit. No, there's something much deeper going on. Matter of fact, this this is included in that text. It, the author says the place over that man, a wicked man, Russia. I want him on top of that man, literally, like on, on his back, and then I want him inside of that man as possession. And then he says, and place a Satan, a Satan at his right hand. And so the working hypothesis in demonology for probably centuries was that with every possession, you need to know between, you need, you need to know if you're talking to the Satan or if you're talking to that disincarnate spirit. Right. Now, moving even deeper, they, they also talk that the Satan that many people are casting out of people is actually attached to the unclean spirit that's also in that demoniac. And so what's happening, again, this gets this really creepy, but what, what many people have done and experienced is the priest will cast out the fallen angel or the, the adversary, thinking that we're done, we're good, not realizing that that entity is still going to be there because it's waiting on that disincarnate entity that's taken up residence as well. So there's this power struggle. That's just merely one theory, but I think it's interesting. No, it, 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 uh, I, you know, I'm sitting here nodding my head like a bobblehead, right? Because uh, so much of what uh, my personal belief system is too. Uh, and, you know, we get into the, uh, the whole, I mean, scholars argue all the time about uh, Lucifer versus Satan, or are they the right. same person, or are they different? And uh, okay, I'm going to throw myself out there. I'm I'm going to say 
on record, I'm sure I'm going to get skewed for this. Uh, I'm I'm going to say that they are two different people, not people, but entities. Uh, yeah. So, simply from what I you know read on the subject, and uh, I think there's even a, a better description isn't in Isaiah. Talks, uh, talks, uh, he talks more about Lucifer and the, and the falling. And uh, uh, I mean, that's what well, I have to work with. <laughs> yeah, he mentioned something that I've long wrestled with, like both my father and myself. You are perfect in all of your ways until iniquity or enomos, lawlessness was found in you. If he's the author of lawlessness, how you know, I mean, who put so the question that we're wrestling with, my father, who put the lawlessness and iniquity in him? Ah, yeah, yeah. So, we're getting into some really hairy stuff here. Uh, but yeah, getting back to just the field, man, I think again, these beings were doing what they were doing probably before recorded history and getting to understand the case studies linking all of them together instead of just separating them by virtue of titles and well this is the face i put on this phenomenon i think it would do us uh, it would do us well to add everybody to the table because and i've said this before if we're not all at the table we're going to all be on the menu right all right uh okay uh now we've, we've gone through uh you know who who or who made Lucifer Ben Satan uh, demonologist. You mentioned a little bit earlier, and I really uh, want to get into this a little bit more. Is the idea of the uh, succubus? Okay, where does where does that mythos come from? Where does that what come from? I'm sorry. Uh, where does that mythos come from? Mythos. Yeah. So originally. We found beings and ritual bowls carved in there, religious amulets, uh, incantations against certain beings. And one of them, again, we're dealing with consistency here. <laughs> I think that's what's fascinating, yeah. uh, regardless of what title we slapped on them. Uh, but yeah, all of a sudden, there, there, you know, at that point in time, you know, if you if you were a man, uh, beings would manifest to you in the image of a lovely handmaiden or uh, a wife or a deceased wife or something and then it would induce uh, the individual into a dream state and then collect excretions from their bodies now uh, not to get even darker as if this isn't sinister enough the very first recordings of us experiencing this as a species uh, included recently deceased men okay so Sinistrari of Amino and, and Montague Summers and other vampirologists included all of this research into their vampirology. And so they had witnesses and witness accounts, rather, of uh, families uh, just putting the body of their, the, the deceased man in the corner and then coming around two hours later and something has been done to this body or, or somebody, you know, would, would put the casket down and suddenly they would see apparitions near it or, or something. Uh, Montague Summers even had a couple of cases where people witnessed beings reanimating the cadaver and then taking the excretions. Now, now we're going to get into some research that's heavy, that it's very, you know, it's going to be deeper than the surface level research 
that I've heard about this subject in my forgive me a little bit of a purist. Um, so yeah, what we're dealing with again is their first manifestations was with the milking of the carcasses of the dead. Now, in, at first blush in demonology, we argued forever about, okay, whether or not the incubi and the succubi entities were one and the same. Well, I'll just change my shape and, and get seed, and, and, and as, you know, then I'll go to a woman as a man, and then I'll inseminate her as an incubus. So all of these are, are their dynamics. And what we try to do, again, is in order to apply agency to them, we separated them by virtue of titles. That's an incubus. This is a succubus. That's a UFO abduction. That's a ghost. All of these terms. Yeah. Now, but if you, if you get to the data, uh, the data suggests that we're dealing with the singular intelligence that is wearing separate masks, making us think that what we are dealing with are actual entities, horns and hooves, right? All of this without us fully understanding that there's something far darker going on beyond the veil. Right, right. Uh, when you were talking about like the incubus, uh, do they, I mean, do they have the power to inseminate a female? And here's, here's what we, anyway. No, here's what we have. Uh, okay, this gets back to the idea that do angels have seed? Yeah. Right. Uh, and then this, because I was talking to my dad about this not too long ago, even with the uh, idea of Yeshua HaMashiach or Jesus Christ in the first century, in order to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament, he had to be born of Joseph's seed. Yeah. But, but they never were intimate together prior to this pregnancy. Right. So their idea, their one of the working hypothesis, this is weird, and I, I admit it, it's not my hypothesis is that he took seed from Joseph, inseminated Mary with it. Now, if we're dealing with that, then, then now what we're dealing with are gods who are wanting to become incarnate. And then and that may possibly even be the war in which we're part of. Right. Man, that, that is so fascinating. I mean, really, the only really thing openly they say uh, is, you know, uh, the how, he's from the house of David. Right. But you're absolutely right, I, and because you talk about you know uh, overshadowing Mary, and she's uh, you know yeah. virgin, virgin uh, insemination and birth. Uh, just you know what you know what is that? what is that right? I mean because right. it's just a bland description and talking about like different entities and stuff. Because, I mean, humans love labels and names. We have to put them right. in a box and check them off and go to the next one. When you're right, I mean, many, uh, many different faces of the same entity. Correct. Right? Correct. Uh, each and every one of them, sorry, each and every one of them, uh, again, we're, we're looking to see, okay, which, which mask is real? Like, which, which part of what we're witnessing as a cognitive, cognitive interface what what part of that is something that's actually real in and of itself? Um, I'll say that because I've had cases of my own where people have witnessed uh, uh, like former lovers, like one case in India, a young lady reached out to me and uh, she had witnessed this one being, she said it, it was one being that manifested to her in eight different ways. 
And all of them were men she had been with intimately, even to the point that at first it manifested to her as men that did not wear protection with her, which would mean it was trying to increase the probability of insemination. A whole different level of thinking here. Yeah. Uh, you know, with the, because I also I find the, uh, just the act of the incubus and the succubus fascinating too. And that kind of, I'm going to go off on the left field a little bit, but it always triggers me a little bit about, uh, well, what do you know about uh, Lilith? Yeah, so yeah, so it's very interesting too, because that is within uh, Jewish mysticism. Right. I know, I know, I know what I know about her, but again, I can't, here, here's here's why I'm saying what I'm saying. Okay. In the 16th century in witch era literature, there were witches. And this will explain a lot about the phenomenon, just by virtue of hearing a case study of like, wait a minute, something's wrong here. Uh, but women were going on demonic flights. We would call them UFO abductions. They were going on, it's what they called them back then, demonic flights, where something took them from their bi from their biological and geographical location. Sometimes it was out of body. Sometimes they were in body. And uh, these, these people were taken on demonic flights by what they called an intelligent energy. And then they're taken to an undisclosed location where they copulated with what they thought were corpses and demons. The demons obviously look like demons because, you know, it's a demon. And the corpses, obviously everybody knows what that is or what they are. But anyways, in the middle of this theatrical production, these women are thinking that they're making love with demons, they're demon love, whatever. But suddenly the frequency went out. Yeah. In the, te the technology that was being employed in order for all of this, this theatrical production to occur, it fuzzed in and out. For a fleeting moment, these women are looking around at what they thought was an incubi or an incubus and a succubus, a demon. No, what was occurring to them was they were being poked and prodded by metallic objects. Mm, okay. It was a program. This is all the way, this is in which era, which era literature. And so what we witnessed, though, is, is that the phenomenon masked itself according to what would gain access to these women yeah again if you if you believe i'm a demon and you want okay i'll be a demon to you as long as and this, this is scary too uh one of the experiencers wrote in diary that one of the objects that was poking her you can edit this out but this is alarming oh, it was circumcised it was circumcised according to a measure of a man so the phenomenon had, I'm talking, constructed and tailored this, this production. And then these women, if they never known, if there was no frequency fuzz now, they would have went back to bed. Never, you know, just, okay, you know, I'm doing, I'm doing my thing with a demon. Meanwhile, the phenomenon is, is uh, it's manipulating them. Right. So when, when like a... Okay, I'm just going to label demon, right? Yeah. Uh, when the succubus, uh, or when they do inseminate, 
what is the uh, product of that? Is that purely human, or is this some something very that we're delving into? We're delving into it. Uh, so if we're, we're going to get into Genesis 6, uh, again, we're dealing with the pathology of possession. The purpose of possession is not the relocation of consciousness only, but it's the replication of life. It's how these beings stay alive. Right. Now, if you're okay, now there's a common misconception in the field, and I hear this mainly from people that they either don't know or they just repeat it from their from researchers. They said, I don't know. Um, but, you know, demons don't have bodies. That's not necessarily true. Many of them did. And they become disembodied, disincarnate. They become what we would consider to be unclean spirits, spirits that wander. They have no rest. And so they possess. Now, now we're going to get into the missing fetus syndrome. We're going we're to hit some, some, you know, hit some balls out of the park here, hopefully, and, and get people thinking. Uh, because what started happening was these beings who, who needed a new body to possess, they would go out and they would take seed, not of their own, of somebody else, inseminate a woman with that seed, and then possess the fetus that's born inside. Okay. Now, is this interesting? I'm getting past oh, this. Is, this is, man, this is so much in my wheelhouse right now. <sighs> I'm going to have to work that neck brace after this is over from the bobblehead. Okay. <laughs> well, dude, so, so check this out. So what we had, again, um, it's called the curse of Cain, uh, where Yahweh curses him, and you're cursed to wonder the earth will not accept you. So you have what's called a liminal being, a being that's in, in between two worlds. It has what I call the disability of being, being without being a being. There's no central location to it. There's no inhabitants. There's no host. There's no throne. There's no social skin. And so what these beings sought out to do was to create bodies that looked like their apparitions. Uh, now the way they now right yeah so the way they did that this is found in the apocrypha of John and this will put some pieces together regarding Genesis six narrative. They went into women. They inseminated them with the seed. And then it says at first that they manifested to them in the image of their lovers or their husbands. Now, and then at the moment of consummation with someone else's seed, and then they, they stared into, this is what the Apocrypha of John says. This is a, 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 an abduction narrative. Thousands of years ago, they stared into the eyes of the female victim. And then it says, then they change their apparition to what they truly look like. But now they're staring into their eyes. Now, this is all deeply rooted in an Eastern Mediterranean pregnancy ritual. It's a fertility ritual. They believed that whatever man the woman was focused upon at the moment of inception, she will birth the material image of that entity through her womb as a child. Now, now we're getting to something that's very unique in, in the pathology. If these beings wanted to produce a child that looked like the husband, they would have never changed out of that costume and into who they really are. So what they're doing is creating literally social skins to implant their own consciousness in. Now, this, this is why we have scholars out there, especially evangelical, who, evangelical they can't understand why Rephaim is both giant <laughs> and its deceased ancestor. 
makes no sense, but only through the lens of knowing that the giant was the hard man. The, the, the disincarnate consciousness was the software and putting them both together, then it starts to make sense. Okay, this is what possession has been all along. Totally. Because, uh, you know, you have the, uh, I use the term a lot of mythos because uh, it goes back down through time and much of an oral tradition. Uh, you know, the God, of, the God and my God. Where, you know how that how that fits in, in in into the whole scheme of things too, and then the Nephilim, the the mighty men of renown of old. You know, right. uh, are are they are they then the product of uh, the fall? You know, for lack of a better term, fallen, uh, mm -hmm. inseminating human women, and that's what you have somewhat somewhat of a semi divine entity. something. Yeah. The, yeah. The, God doesn't like he. Hey guys, you know this. This is not <laughs> it's flood time now. You know, uh, yeah, kill them all. But that's all. That also answers another question we see in evangelicalism: is how did these beings survive the flood? Because they're not operating within the contextual hypothesis here. These beings wanted another body to possess to inhabit. Now these are what I consider to be the altars. Um, because their, their, their bloody footprints are everywhere, regardless mm. of what kind of face we want to put on them. They're doing what they've always been, been doing. Um, like, okay, if we go into the 16th century, I'll be talking more about this tonight on um, Coast to Coast, uh, we're dealing with the same pathologies. And it's almost like the phenomenon will, will wear aliases. Mm. It does what it does ritually, but as long as it's Todd, not Jimmy, no big deal, right? No, it's calling itself Todd. Right. It is Jimmy, right? Or doing so. Anyways, yeah. So um, one of the aspects of this that's also disturbing is uh, the incubi entity and how it stretched its draconian shadow into the 16th century. Um, we have case studies of the 16th century of women, uh, actually actually a movement of people who were uh, basically CE5-ing their way into understanding whatever we're dealing with. And so they would meet in undisclosed locations. They would light candles. They would do. They would perform rituals. And the purpose of this was to conjure these beings. Now, there. This is going to sound like CE five because I believe it's a CE five is a modern interpretation of this particular phenomenon. Um, but it's not because I'm wanting it to be right. I'm not out here trying to you know intentionally manipulating data to suggest it's like CE five. No. Uh, their base ground, their, their grounding foundational principle was called the Gilgal principle or Gilgal doctrine. And the Gilgal doctrine consisted of my intentions determine your intentions with me. And so they would approach these beings that way, which is, we don't even do that with strangers. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, hey, I want to I dovetail again. Uh, we, we touched on it, but I, I, I want to delve more into it. And that is Lilith, the whole tale. Uh, can you can you give the uh, listeners here just a brief what what they oh, what we sorry. know of Lilith? Yeah, thank you for bringing that up, that around because I I was on a tangent before and I would have forgotten what I'm going to say now. Um, hey, well, we like uh, like Led Zeppelin man ramble on. <laughs> yeah, right. So again, uh, Lilith is not alone in the fact that if you notice. 
comparative literature in that time period in that part of the world, you'll see that before we have Lilith, we have Lil, L-I-M. And Lil is what Phoenicians and Akkadians alike, they all called Lil. No, well, they all termed it Lil, but really what it was, was the disincarnate potential of consciousness in each and every person. And so we have writings, uh, many ancient writings, uh, where people, when people are dying, they'll reference their ghost as Lil. When my Lil leaves my body, put me, you know, all this stuff. And so what you have here, originally the legend uh, was Pekatalila, Lilith, Lelu. Uh, it's not just the origin of Lilith, but Lilith itself was designed, the Lil part was designed to characterize and to specify the nature of her spirit. She was consciousness. So that part of her, it's Lilith. So anyway, so Lilith was said to have been a woman who did, again, missing fetus syndrome. As a woman who, who was barren or something, could not have kids in, in life. And so what she did is she took babies from the womb. And so Lilith, and not just that, right, but, but becoming that which would give birth to these beings. So it's very unique. Um, but there, again, with, with incubi and succubi, the same thing with, with Lilith and Lelu, there, there is a masculine and a feminine version, right? Um, but yeah, so I think what we're dealing with, again, a lot of this goes back to consciousness, not new, not new life discovered, but old life consciousness discovered in a new way. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, to, to me, that makes perfect sense. Uh, because, I mean, when we talk, you know, Adam and Eve and the garden and early on, uh, you know, we're we're dealing a lot with metaphor right and yeah. so within that you have if you're taking it on a, on a metaphorical level that makes perfect sense that there would be that sort of consciousness right as adam's consciousness or ease consciousness and uh the only interpretation i have of lilith is uh the the kabbalic traditions correct uh explain to the people what what Lilith is, according to their Kabbalic uh, uh, phraseology. Yeah, so as far as I'm aware of, the classic tradition was that she had seduced Adam and created this hybrid race of demons. That's what I was told. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the hybridization program, she was the, the mother of demons. That's what they call it, the mother of demons. And that uh, there was this hybrid race uh, that she was Adam's first wife. And again, it's like we have to pick through it all to figure out, okay, is which one's allegory, which one's true? Were these really hybrid beings? Uh, or was she, again, was she consciousness that was simply trying to replicate life so that she herself could stay alive? See, again, this, this idea is, is pervasive in the literature. Uh, that there were beings that were dislocated, suffered the disability of being. And in order for them to stay in this dimension, they had to keep creating bodies. Um, now, we see this in high magic, dark sorcery. Uh, one of them is called the Red Rite, one of the rituals, and that is when a, when a magi, when a magician would uh, suffer a debilitating disease or a death, death spiral or something, 
uh, he would go out and he would take seed and inseminate a woman with a baby. This is not new stuff. And then would place his consciousness in that baby. And what you have is a hybrid. And this is why I say when people, you know, the whole field of the apology is so focused on much of it is not a lot. But, uh, you know, what are these hybrids? They go back to the DNA. And I'm thinking, okay, that's great. But whose consciousness is going to be in the hybrid? Right. When, when we talk, uh, I, I love dovetailing because as we're progressing in the convo, you know, stuff, different stuff comes up and, you know, uh, with my ADD, you know, hey, look, it's a squirrel. I sometimes have to dovetail back because it, some things just occur to me. Uh, when you were talking about like uh, looking into the eyes and then showing their true form, is there ever a description of that true form? I haven't read any. Uh, this is so, it's a strange question. I mean, no, it's a great question. It's strange that you mentioned that. Uh, because usually when we get at, down into what the images are, it's most all, mostly always just this, this fictitious presentation. Um, I did a show, Strange Recon, a long time ago, and it's weird. And once you start talking about this research, people come out of the woodwork because now you're telling stories that are just like theirs. And it's a really interesting process and, and I think helpful for others. But anyways, uh, this individual heard that I was coming on and uh, she told the story. She said, you know, she said, one night I'm in bed. She said, my husband comes around the corner of the bed and, uh, you know, wham, bam, thank you, man. 30 minutes later, he's, you know, standing at the edge of the bed looking at her and she's looking at him and she's like, at first I thought, okay, you know, I'm a little bit drowsy and, you know, there's maybe I'm just tired of other take a nap of some sort. And she said, then she, she looked at him again and he turned his head and when he turned his head, she freaked out because she said, that's not the man I'm married to. And when, like, literally, she didn't say it, but it's almost like she thought it. And as soon as she did, he just started laughing and then disappeared into a smoke and then flew out the, the hall into the hallway. That's yeah. not out of the ordinary. So, but, but what my colleagues and I now are looking at is, okay, if we're dealing with entities or a phenomenon that has all power, to get whatever they want and can from us, then what is the purpose of playing a role? Gotcha, gotcha. Hey, uh, before before you get out of here, uh, last question I want to delve into is uh, Ouija boards. As being mm -hmm. like gateways and what comes through the other side. Uh, I had a Ouija board experience uh, when, I, when I wore a much younger man's clothes. And uh, I, won't, I won't delve into it too much, but something followed me. And mm -hmm. uh, it was actually, my brothers were in the room too, because uh, I came home and I was freaked, right? And so I run upstairs, the teenager, Jason, with hair, runs upstairs, and uh, brothers come in, they're like, what the heck's going on? You know, what, what's wrong with you? And I'm, I'm just like, you know, because when you run into something that, that is not, of the natural world, like the tangible, everyday, uh, right. touch, feel, smell, five senses, uh, your brain almost stops because it doesn't know how to process something that it's that has never been conceived in that mind, right? And that's right. where I, I was like, "Holy cow! What did I just? Yeah, you know." And then uh, whatever it was, man, uh, just um, upstairs, second floor window in my bedroom. And the, it proceeds to bang on the walls, outside walls, and the window. 
And my, of course, my brother, like, holy cow, you know, and someone climb up a ladder and try and bring you whatever, you know, try to find a uh, meaning to it. Uh, but to me, man, uh, Ouija boards are some serious stuff uh, that, be, you know, beware of what you're, <laughs> what you're looking for, because what comes back out may not necessarily what you intended it to be. Uh, no, no kidding. Yeah, so talk to me about like Ouija boards as in like a, a gateway or something for uh, these demon entities. Yeah, well, I, I think the, the Ouija board is an extension of the mortal portal that is us. Uh, we're the ones holding the letters and all this stuff. We're all we're doing all this. So I think that 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 the idea of or holding the object with letters, I think the idea of uh, the uh, the Ouija board being a portal is is indeed true. But I think again that these beings are looking for the mortal portal, and they're using the Ouija board to bait us into contact. This right. is a disturbing aspect of it, and this gets back to the 16th century. And I'll shut up after this real quick. But in the midst of their little CE5 thing, women were waking up in the middle of the night uh, thinking that they just had a nightmare of a being assaulting them. I can't say this benign on the show. I just can't, you know, stuff. But I will tell you guys, because, you know, we're a little bit freer than God. <laughs> uh, but, you know, these women felt, okay, it was a bad nightmare. You know what I mean? It's, it's been, no worries. I, I was I was really asleep. I could feel it. I was REM, whatever. It's just a bad dream. They go to work. They're put on their makeup or something, and they look at bruises on their hands that correlate directly with what they experienced in the nightmare, even to the point of having ligature marks. Right. So the deception here, the deception here is pervasive. It's perverted. And uh, we as a species, we're groping in the darkness really to understand Okay, this is what we're, we're. This is what they're manifesting. This is what they're allowing us to remember. What are they wanting us to forget? And that's at the heart of the research. Right, right. Because uh, uh, there is so much that as we move move through the sands of time, that we've lost <laughs> so much. And whereas man, that you know, what you know, when primitive man, not even close to that, but. Uh, had a much more of a grip on what these uh, what these were more than us. You know, we we just you know going on nine to five lives, uh, right. watching movies, uh, hopefully hopefully reading books. But uh, <laughs> we you know again we've kind of lost touch of what man man really was or is, right. and. Uh, so when we talk about things like the Ouija board and stuff, we run up against things that we either have lost uh, mm -hmm. through the ages, or because we had no concept of it. I, I, I'd be honest with you, dude. I, uh, you know, usually in, in radio, the, the cardinal sin is no dead air, right? So you just rant, you know, right. on, you know. And uh, I was, I couldn't speak. I didn't know what to think. What the heck is this? Obviously, when you when you're a guy and you're a teenager, uh, and then suddenly you run up against something that is uh, infinite, infinitely more powerful than you, something right. that you only sense, and what you're sensing ain't great, you know. Hundred uh, percent. We tend to just, you know, dare in the headlights, and I was, I was a dare in the headlights, and man, when that banging started, I, I'll be honest with you, I want. <laughs> I want in the fetal position, you know. No doubt. 
But luckily after that, I, I've never had any more problems. Uh, I've had some, what I would consider maybe ghost activity, mm -hmm. uh, but nothing I would classify as the classical uh, supernatural de demons and or... Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's, cer there's certainly yeah. a difference, man. Uh, like, okay, so Sinistrari, first of all, this is a lot of sick stuff. I know it is. Um, but I'm not alone in finding the finding out that these beings were leaving semen samples on their victims. I talked to James Bartley yesterday or the day before. He's uh, James is, you know, James, he's uh, was a contemporary to Dr. Color Turner, mentored by Barbara Bartholik. And I just asked him point blank, you know, because I had. Dr. Turner's books in my library too. And I said, man, I'm just going to ask James, did you and in, uh, in your research with Dr. Turner and Barbara Bartholik, did you ever come in contact with women who, who had, had like had semen samples from these beings? And they said, absolutely. Absolutely. So this is right. This is not okay. Lovers and light. I mean, this is really dark stuff. Uh, but Sinistrari of Amino not only collected semen samples, but he believed that a lot of these semen samples uh, had been taken from recently deceased men. And so that it was not just the seed they were using, but it was what they were using it for in the rituals they were performing during the insemination. This, this gets back to a whole other show that we got to do uh, because, again, and I'll stop, but the shortest horror story ever written was the last man on earth was alone in his house and there came a knock on the door. What is that? That's out there. Right? And, right? and why is it employing rituals? Like it's a serial killer phenomenon. Right. Uh, and rituals that may or may not be something that you can completely understand because they're maybe right. from a different uh, paradigm of, uh, you know, we get it from Eastern philosophy, Western philosophy, all the different places. And maybe we just don't understand or have a grasp on what's going on. Right. Yeah. At all. At all. Uh, you know, if you look at the, the tradition of oratory incantation, the purpose of incantation is incarnation. Yeah. So what are we looking at here exactly? Uh, that's why I, I don't agree with the ET hypothesis. I think that's just because we, we don't have a working vocabulary at this point. We're yeah. doing whatever we can at this point. Uh, but they're, they're transcending every blueprint. Um, so it's either that the phenomenon has evolved because it's evolving alongside of us, or it's evolving in order to evade us, which I believe is what they're doing. That this, this new idea is, again, it's a new evolution, but it's also a new way to evade our senses. Yeah. Which... <laughs> Man, listen, I, uh, it's about time to end the sucker, and I've still got like a, a, a good page, almost two more pages to <laughs> questions, man, because I, I, I dig this, man. Uh, yeah, man, sure. But I, I, as much as I, as much as I want to, I can't. We've got to, we've got to let you right off into the sunset. So, last, <laughs> last question for you what's next for Nathaniel Gillis? Oh man, I don't know. I've got to get out of my own way. I know that. Uh, you know, I have goals. I've if you guys, if you can't tell already, I'm not like a lot of the other demonologists. Uh, I'm just different, and I'm not saying that's in a good way or, or a bad way. It's just it's, it's present. I know. Uh, so what I'm looking to do now is kind of grow beyond that specific 
field of research and become just a general researcher, you know, and hopefully lecture. I have a lot of friends in the UK. There are uh, talks of me possibly coming and lecturing there. Um, but my, my goal next, next part of my career, I'd like to do lectures in person and uh, in a more academic manner, right? With people who are, who are willing to think out of the box and out of the coffin in order for us to gain more access to this stuff. Excellent. Yeah, we, there is something here uh, uh, in Oregon uh, called the Oregon Ghost Conference. It's once a year, and a lot of different uh, people from different disciplines come, and a lot of academia. I was I was really surprised about mm -hmm. uh, guys in their in their ivy towers coming down and giving you know dusting off the books and actually talking about it. I was impressed, man. We got to get you over here for that, man. Uh, dude, uh, I freak out, man. I'd yeah, I, th I think you would, uh, I think you would be at home, and I think it's an audience that would uh, have that open mind. Yeah. I'd love it, man. I mean, right now what, what people are doing, which it took me a while to get to this place, uh, but right now people are just, okay, and I'm not hinting at this. I'm just saying this is it's pretty fun. Okay, hop on the show and give a 45-minute presentation. Just talk, basically, just talk. And so that's what I've been doing. Leak on Pro Leak Project, all these other shows. It's just talk. So I'm like, all right. So I'm used to doing that is my point. So it would be, it'd be really cool. Yeah. Um, Man, we got to get you on the show again. Because I've only sure. talked just a, a little bit. And I started asking questions that weren't on my cheat sheet. And somehow, uh, like, two more huh? And uh, endlessly fascinating, man. Uh, Nathaniel, thank you so much for coming on, man. This is this right in my wheelhouse. This is like Christmas morning, man. <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, we can we can book another show as soon as you want. I uh, I'm just glad I got like I said, I've got to get through this busy stint, mm -hmm. and then uh, I can't wait after all these are done. I'm gonna go to my favorite chicken wing joint, watch some baseball, <laughs> throw a few back, and honestly, dude, it's hard not to get burnt out. That's the biggest thing. Right. Right. Uh, who, okay, quickly, this has nothing to do with nothing. Yeah. This is lightning round, so I'm throwing it out there. Yeah. Who's your favorite baseball team? Right now it's the Reds. Uh, we used to suck for like 25, 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> now we're, we're good, I guess. You know, I like this Eli De La Cruz guy or Ellie De La Cruz. He's a stud. Um, yeah. But I don't, honestly, my, I don't really watch much baseball. I'm a football guy. Yeah. I love football. Yeah. Bro. Okay, favorite football team? Uh, college or pro? Oh, both. E, all of the above. I'm a Buckeye fan. Uh, yes, I'm a Buckeye fan because I'm born and raised in Ohio. And uh, if I had to choose, this is going to hurt. I used to be a Pats fan. Okay. Even though I'm a Buckeye fan, I was a Brady fan. Oh, yeah. Which is a paradox. Uh, but I would have to go. Michigan, do right? what? Brady, Michigan? Yeah. Yeah, he did. Um, I would say right now I'm going to pick another Ohio team. Cincinnati's good. Yeah. I love Cincinnati, dude. And then, you know, they plus my favorite steakhouse has a steak under named after Joey Burrow. So hey. it's kind of like it fits. There you go. Yeah, my uh, <laughs> listeners right now when this comes out, they're going to be like, "Oh my gosh, what is he doing?" But uh, <laughs> my favorite baseball teams, I have a National League and an American League team. Uh, American League, the New York Yankees, uh, simply because I was a real little kid, you know, Reggie Jackson, you know, mm -hmm. Mr. October. Uh, and then on the, 
on the uh, National League side. It's, it, it was the long-suffering Chicago Cubs. Mm. You know, every yeah. year, you know, you kind of like, oh, next year, it's going to be next year. And finally, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, favorite team to me is, again, uh, NFC is going to be Minnesota Vikings because my grandpa liked it. And mm -hmm. uh, AFC was the first team I ever liked when I was a wee little sprout, and that's the uh, New York Jets. Ooh, okay. So, um, uh, so anyways, I'm going to start hammering on about football. Hey, hey welcome to Mid on Alchemy. Today we're going to talk about football. Anyway, uh, college, dude, Oregon, Oregon Ducks, they may be playing uh, Ohio State every year now. It looks like it'll be interesting. They go to the Big Ten. So, anyway, I know they, I know they beat us a couple. Well, they beat us the other year or two ago, two years ago. I think it was. But yeah, man, uh, we'll do another show. Like I said, just hit me up, and uh, I'm booking for August is filling up, so I'm probably booking for like September, or whatever, man. You know me, just send me an email or something, and we'll, yeah. we'll work it out, brother. Uh, excellent, man. Amen. Hey, uh, Nathaniel, thank you again for coming on. All right, so let's do a little in-house goings-on. We've got a new voicemail line so that you can call and give us your paranormal story. You know, and I just might put it on the air. Or if you think that you might be a good guest or guest ideas, drop us a line. The number is 971 205 2464. Again, 971 205 2464. You can always email us too by sending it to midnightalchemyshow at gmail.com. Midnightalchemyshow at gmail.com. All right. Hey, folks, uh, thank you for giving us a listen and continuing to support the show. Until next episode, me, Jason Allen, says, a Reaver Dare Show.